Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. Let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign as we just sung about, and we thank you that you are good and kind to us. We know that you have promised that your word is effective and will do that which it seeks to accomplish. And so we pray to that end that you would accomplish your will in our hearts today, that you would help us to be encouraged. I pray that those who need uh, rebuked, that you would rebuke them with your word. Those who are weak, that you would strengthen them. Those who are discouraged, that you you would encourage. And you would help all of us to rejoice in the sovereignty of our Savior. I come to you acknowledging my insufficiency and weakness in preaching and pray that you would simply highlight your word today um, and that we would honor you through this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Putting the cart before the horse is a perennial problem for the human race. Uh, Last year, Uh, Some of you know we put some fruit trees in uh, our backyard, and uh, that was probably putting the cart before the horse, uh, because I should have put the fence in first, and then the fruit trees. Uh, I underestimated how eager the local deer population would be uh, in completely uh, stripping every leaf off of those trees. Uh, Fortunately, I think it was only one or two of them that didn't make it. Uh, The rest of them, even though all the leaves were chewed off, came back this spring. Uh, But now I have the fence uh, around it. Uh, And so next time I'll I'll know better uh, to put the fence in first. Uh, We have a tendency, whether it's just eager to get the project done or whatever it is, to kind of sometimes maybe rush through things or to put the cart before the horse. Uh, And there are all kinds of examples that we could use of this. When it comes to our souls, we sometimes put the cart before the horse in this way. We sometimes turn the fruit of our salvation into the root of our salvation. It's a pretty big distinction to make, and it's a pretty serious consequence when we flip those. Let me explain what I mean. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10. And it's important to get the for and the by in the right place and not swap those. Otherwise, we put the root and the fruit and we mix them up. In today's passage, John is going to take no small amount of theological precision and develop a point about the role and relationship of good works and obedience as it connects to our salvation, and he's going to talk about propitiation and Christ as our advocate and show how all these things fit in the puzzle in their proper places. Let's read the text. 
First John, chapter one, beginning. Or I'm sorry, chapter two, beginning in verse one. He says this: "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation." For our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to give to you three points today uh, in our outline. We're going to see the goal, the advocate, and the evidence. The goal, and the advocate, and the evidence. And so we're going to start with the goal, which is holiness. And as we begin this section, what John is going to do here is he is going to offer a course correction. And a course correction is required here at this point, at this juncture, not because anything that was said before was unclear, but simply because, as sinful men, we have a tendency to corrupt Scripture to our own ends. What John is saying is that he writes this letter in part to prevent us from doing what? From sinning. Okay, and so we see this in verse 1. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you. I am writing to you so that you may not sin. Pretty clear and straightforward. Um, He has been and will continue today to talk about God's free and sovereign grace. And it is needed sometimes to offer this corrective here. Because some people, when they hear of God's free grace, think it doesn't matter what I do then. Uh, John Calvin says that when ungodly men hear about God's free grace, that they boastingly say that a license is given to sin. And of course, you know this. This is, uh, again, another perennial problem that we've seen throughout the history of the church We see this uh, particularly in Romans chapter 5 and 6. And at the end of Romans 5, Paul gives uh, this whole section about God's free grace. And so he anticipates that there's going to be uh, some, in Calvin's word, ungodly men who will say, well then, let's just, if, if, if God pours out grace when I sin and we want more grace, then let's sin more. And he anticipates that. In Romans 6, 1, because he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then what does he say? By no means. And likewise, John is doing something very similar here in 1 John 2 and verse 1. He's saying, listen up, everyone. Pause. Time out. God's grace and his mercy is not a license to sin. We're writing these things to you so that you don't sin. You can't conclude that Christ as our advocate means we can just do whatever we want to do. Now, as surprising as this may sound, the Christian delights in. We're going to use that word specifically, delights. Not endures, 
not reluctantly submits to, but the Christian delights in becoming more like Christ. The Christian delights in conforming himself or herself to the likeness of Christ to be more obedient and more Christ-like today than yesterday. The Christian longs after this, and of course, the New Testament is filled with statements like this, where we emphasize the Christian's pursuit of Christ-likeness. We have Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, but in the New Testament we have passages exhorting us to Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 or 15. He died for all that those who might live, uh, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. We're not living for ourselves anymore. We're living for him. We'll be more like Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Ephesians 2.10, I referenced this in the introduction. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we understand that even if we, don't under, if we don't know all the details, grace and obedience are compatible with one another. This is a big theme that we have to emphasize repeatedly. And so this is what John is doing. He's saying this and then this and this and this, and they all fit together. And so that's what he does in the very next, or actually the second half of verse 1 on to verse 2. And he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But what does the second half of verse 1 say? If anyone does sin, there's a provision for you. Okay, there is grace. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, again, the fact that Christ is our advocate, contrary to popular opinion, does not lead us to say, well, I can loosen up a bit now. Christ as advocate does not mean we can be sloppy or careless. And it would be appropriate at this point to make a distinction and to discuss a very important theological point, and that is how grace motivates differently than law. And this is something I want to emphasize um, very clearly for all of us here, because this is something that I think is oftentimes um, missed. Okay? I'm going to put the objection on the screen here, okay? I have had conversations with people, and I know some of you have had conversations with people. You've had conversations with unbelievers, let's say, or you've had conversations with people Uh, Not Christians, but those who adhere to some sort of a works righteousness that we can earn our way to God. And you get through and you explain the gospel and you explain that it's simply repenting and believing on Christ and salvation is available in Christ freely. And then they say this. If what you're saying is true, then people would just do whatever they want. Anyone ever heard that objection before? Okay, a few of you. Have any of you ever given that objection yourself, maybe before you were a Christian? (laughs) No one's brave enough to raise your hand there. Okay, there's probably a few of you. (laughs) Right? This is an objection that we, if 
If God's grace is really that free, and I don't have to do any, I don't have to work, I don't have to bring myself into conformity, I don't have to make myself worthy of his grace, people would just do whatever they wanted to do. Here's the point that I want to develop here. Grace and law motivate people in two different ways. The people who are voicing this objection up here believe fundamentally is this. This is what they believe. That we need to live constantly with the threat of hell and damnation knocking on our door. Otherwise, we would never shape up and behave. Oh, I better not do this because I'm going to go to hell. I better not do this because... And they believe it's this kind of rough taskmaster. What they don't recognize... They only understand a motivation by law, a motivation by hell. They don't recognize that grace motivates differently than law. So we'll put up the answer to this, okay? The answer is grace motivates differently than law. So these people who are living by this wrong understanding will read a verse like 1 John 2.1. And say, boy, if those Christians have an advocate, then they're just going to do whatever they want. If Christ just forgives you, whenever you sin, they'll do whatever they want. Now, there's a story. I'm going to tell you a story here that I think helps to help us to understand the way that grace motivates differently. There's a story. It's a little bit of a lengthier story, so I'm, I'm going to paraphrase some of it and then read a section. But there's a story of a man who lived uh, really a life of just grievous and gross sin. And he became a Christian, and he left that life behind. And soon after he became a Christian, he wanted to marry, but he was fearful. He found a a lady that he wanted to marry, and he was wrestling internally with the fact that before he was a Christian, he lived this life of, of, of just gross immorality and all kinds of sin. And he was fearful that at some point he would be tempted to go back into that lifestyle, and he didn't want to hurt this lady. So he He was hesitant about whether he should propose to her or not. And so finally, as he was wrestling back and forth, he went to a pastor to get some counsel. And the pastor told him this story. So this is the pastor speaking now. Some time ago, he said, I dealt with a man whose story was not much different from your own. He too had lived a life of sin and had been converted under conditions similar to those Uh, existing in a rescue mission. He had then married a fine Christian woman to whom he had briefly told his sordid story. He said that after he had told his wife this, she kissed him and replied, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and I know something of the workings of Satan. I know that you are a thoroughly converted man, John, but I also know that you have an old nature to which Satan will certainly appeal. He will do all that he can to put temptations in your way. The day may come, and I pray that it never shall, when you shall succumb to temptation and fall into sin. Immediately the devil will tell you that you have ruined everything, that you might as well continue in sin, and that above all you should not tell me because it will hurt me. But John, I want you to know that this is your home. This is where you belong. And I want you to know that there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may come into your life. 
And after the pastor told this man this story, the man said this, If anything could ever keep a man straight, that would be it. You understand the difference in motivation? You understand what's going on here in that there is so much love and so much forgiveness and so much pardon and so much grace in this home that I commit and I promise that whatever you do, it's already forgiven in advance. That motivates. Motivates differently. Grace motivates differently than law. Law says you step out of line and it's hell for you. It's a rough taskmaster. The law says you disobey me one time in your entire life and it's over. Law says you have one shot at this. And every single one of us in this room right now has blown that one shot. Every last one of us. There is no chance for redemption now if the law is your master. And there are people who think that we need that, that rough law taskmaster to keep us on the straight and narrow. It doesn't work. But grace says, I don't want you to sin. But if you do, you see that in 1 John 2? I write this so you don't sin. But if you do, but if you do, understand this, that you are forgiven and pardoned in advance. And that you are always welcome here because of Christ. Sometimes we read the prodigal son story and are like, that, no, that can't happen. That's, that's the free grace of Christ. You stray and you come back and immediately, you don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to do all of this work. You're simply accepted by Christ. God the Father stands with open arms continually. God the Father will never turn his children away. Never. That fact is more true and more sure than any, anything that you see with your eyes, anything that you hear with your ears, the f- scientific laws that are, it would be easier for the law of gravity to be undone than it would be for God to abandon his own children. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ. And one pastor said one time that Jesus Christ as our advocate has never lost a case. He never will. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Richard Sibbs said one time, if we could sin more than he could pardon, then we might have a reason to despair. But what's the implication? We can't. Therefore, we have no reason to despair. Likewise, Sibbs also said in another place, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And we can see that plainly from 1 John He is our propitiation, it says. In other words, what this means is that he satisfied the Father's wrath. God had just wrath against us. And Jesus is the propitiation, meaning he satisfied that wrath by taking it in our place. 
Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He appeased the Father's wrath. God's wrath is turned away because of the atonement. Now, some modern commentators try to water down this word, propitiation, because they think it seems offensive to think of God as an angry God who needs to be appeased. Well, propitiation, uh, there's some, uh, it really, uh, God's not really like wanting to be satisfied. That kind of presents a really bad picture of God. (laughs) We have to remember that God is holy, that he is just, and that anger is one of the attributes of God. You have to. If you have love, you have to have anger. This is logical. If I love life, then I hate death. Okay? Right? It's God loves that which is good and hates that which is evil. God is angry against sin, and his justice demands satisfaction. But this should not cause us despair or worry or concern that this is the way God is, because he provided satisfaction. Satisfaction was provided, not by the accused, not by us, but by Christ, our advocate. God takes the initiative, and he pays the debt himself, and this causes us to rejoice. Now, there's something that I want to discuss here before we get out of this verse. And some of you are anticipating this and wondering when we're going to talk about this particular attribute of this verse. And we're going to talk about this now. This is something that has caused no small amount of debate and discussion amongst Christians for generations. And that is the second half of this verse. Okay? He is the propitiation. We just developed that. He is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the wrath of God the Father for us. And also the sins of the whole world. The propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world? What? I guess we don't need to be Christians then. We don't need to repent and believe in Christ then. If he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, then just go do what you want. Be a Christian, be a Buddhist, be an atheist, be whatever, but he's a propitiation for all of our sins. And so we'll just... Go on as normal. What does John mean when he says that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? So forgive me to get just slightly technical here, but um, it's just the nature of this, okay? Three main views. Some other sub-views, but these are the three main views. View one of three. John is referring to universalism. Okay, he's not, but I'm just saying this is one of the views, okay? Universalism, we're going to summarize with this statement. Jesus is an actual propitiation for all without exception. Universalism is a heretical teaching, but universalism teaches that in the end, everybody will be saved. 
doesn't matter if you're Christian or not. doesn't matter if you believe in the gospel or not. doesn't matter if you are an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or anything. At the end of the day, Jesus will save everybody. That's universalism. Okay? Now, I'm going to venture to guess, I think, I hope, <laughs> that everyone in this room understands that this is out. Okay? Um, this, would, this, this would add so much contradiction to all of Scripture, but even just First John. John has been talking about the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And if he's talking about universalism, all those statements mean nothing. This is how we know that we know him. Well, that doesn't matter. He propitiates all of us. So who? But see, there's a distinction that he's making. We know that we are in him, and then there are some people who are not in him. Okay? So, so he can't be talking about universalism here. John does not mean that Jesus died for everybody in the sen- and that everybody will be saved or be in heaven. Okay, so the debate comes down to the last two. Okay, so let me give you the summary of the next two. View number two of three. Uh, Again, I'm sorry for some of the technical jargon here, but you don't have to know them by their names. Okay, Arminianism or Amaralianism. Say that five times fast. Jesus is a potential propitiation. For all without exception. Jesus, the the propitiation that this verse is talking about is not, in this view, is not talking about Jesus actually being a propitiation. It's just that he could be a propitiation for all people in the world without exception. That's view number two. View number three is the Calvinist view that Jesus is an actual propitiation for all without distinction. In other words, when he says the whole world, he just means we're not talking about Jews only. We're talking about the whole world, all kinds of people. As Revelation talks about, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He died for the whole world in that sense, that all people, regardless of who you are, Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your social status, regardless of anything, he died for the whole world in that sense. He's an actual, not a potential, but an actual propitiation. Now, the debate comes down to these last two views, okay? Since I think universalism is out. In fact, I know universalism now. And I will just say here that I know that some of you hold to the one And some of you hold to the other. Um, And I will also say that those of you who hold to the view that I don't hold to here are my dear friends. Okay? You're wrong, but you're my friends. (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to tell you what... Uh, my understanding of this passage is, okay? There doesn't seem to be anything in the context to indicate that John is talking about propitiation in two different senses. 
Doesn't see, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything going on here that would indicate that he's saying he's the propitiation for you, and in a completely different sense, he's the propitiation for the whole world. In other words, what I'm saying is, if in the first sense it's an actual propitiation, it would have to be an actual one in the second sense. And if it's a potential in the one, it has to be a potential in the other. There doesn't seem to be any contextual reason to understand that differently. In other words, if he is a potential propitiation to believers that we might be saved, we could possibly be saved, he might propitiate us if we trust in Christ, then he's potential to the whole world. Okay, or maybe I should have said that backwards. If he's a potential one to the whole world, you might be saved, then he's also potential to believers. If he's an actual propitiation to believers, then he's an actual one to the whole world. If you take the world the word propitiation to mean potential, then you have to apply it in both directions. Meaning that if Christ is only a potential propitiation for the world, he is only a potential propitiation for me. And if Christ is only a potential propitiation for believers, then we have no assurance of salvation. On the other hand, if you take the third view, as I do, and you understand it to mean an actual propitiation, that Jesus actually did secure your salvation, he is actually pardoning your sin in reality, and it's actually applying to you, then you can rest in the fact that your sins are actually forgiven. In this case, I would suggest to us that the the phrase, the whole world, means all without distinction, instead of all without exception. Jesus is the propitiation for your sins and the sins of the whole world. People without distinction, Jew, Greek, Muslim, anyone. He is not propitiated the sin of unbelievers because they die and go to hell. He is an actual propitiation. He actually made atonement for those who are his own children. We can debate about that later. But he gives to us some evidence. He gives to us some evidence so that we can know if this is true or not. He's making a distinction here between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who know God and those who don't. Those who are, have uh, Christ as their uh, propitiation. Those who have Christ as their advocate and those who don't. And he's going to make a very clear statement here about the evidence of knowing where you are. And so if you're here saying, I want to know which group I'm part of. Am I in group one or two? Am I in the group of people that know God? Am I in the group of people that love God? Am I in the group of people who are saved, who have salvation, who my sins have been atoned for, that God has, has spent, Christ has been my propitiation? Am I in that group? Or am I in the group of people who are lost, unbelievers, dying, going to hell? It's kind of like an important thing to know which group you're in. And so he gives to us in this final section a test of sorts so that we may know that we know God. Look at verse 3. 
We, and by this, we know. You see that? There's the, the phrase that there's a test coming up. By this, we know. You guys want to know? By this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Kind of hope that you were giving us something magical. You know, is there like a stamp that is on our heads? Or is there like writing in the clouds or something? Is there some... If we keep his commandments. Now, whatever the Bible means by this, whatever John means by this, here's what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that you have sinless perfection. It can't mean that. We talked about that last week. We talked about, remember Spurgeon throwing the water in the guy's face and saying the old man was sleeping in you and it just needed to be revived with a glass of water. Okay. Here's how we know that it can't mean sinless perfection. Because he just talked about in the last section that we are going to sin in chapter 1. In fact, even in our own section, in verse, verses 1 through 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So he anticipates this. He anticipates that you're going to do this. On the other hand, it has to mean something. What does it mean if we have, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments? What this means, quite plainly, is that commandment-keeping on the part of the Christian is an evidence of salvation. When Christians violate God's word and disobey God, as all of us have, what they do is they do what we saw last week, live in the light. What does living in the light look like? Repenting and confessing. Remember this? One of the evidences that you are in Christ is that you are continually repenting, confessing, and growing in Christ-likeness. I'm growing. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping more of his word. I'm delighting more in his word. My life is coming into conformity to Scripture. I don't look like I looked a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. It's slow, it's gradual, but it's going in a direction. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson observes, faith works by love. Love expresses itself in obedience. Bonson notes, God's holy and good law is never wrong in what it demands. It is perfect, just like the lawgiver himself. It is a transcript of his moral character. Christians delight in God's word, and we want to be conformed to it. So here's a question, a test question. Do you hate your sin, or are you dismissive towards it? It's a big indicator. Well, it's... Or there are certain kinds of sins. I hate this sin, but I'm dismissive towards this grouping of sins in my life. That's not a good sign. Christians are not dismissive towards God's word and his commandments. They are constantly moving closer to them and growing in their conformity to them. They are not perfect. John has already made this clear. But neither are they hypocrites. 
Puritan Stephen Charnock said this, it is a sad thing to be Christians at supper, heathens in our shops, and devils in our closets. Christians, yes, understand that we are going to sin, but we're not hypocritical about that. We confess it. One of the early church fathers, Origen, born in the second century AD, said this, and this faith, when it has been justified, is firmly embedded in the soil of the soul like a root that has received rain, so that when it begins to be cultivated by God's law, that is faith, when it's cultivated by God's law, branches arise that bring forth the fruit of works. The root of righteousness, therefore, does not grow out of the works, but rather the fruit of works grows out of the root of righteousness. That root, of course, of righteousness that God also credits even apart from works. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that the works grow out of the faith. It's the fruit of it, uh, which is very telling for this being the second century A.D. Um, many uh, Catholics will claim, for instance, that this doctrine did not was not invented, quote-unquote, until uh, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. But you see all the way back here, we see in the early, early church, Understanding the difference between roots and fruits. John continues on and says this, Whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly love God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Now one must be very careful to understand the thrust of this text. Many people can go to an emotionally driven church service, sing songs that make you feel all the feels, and then say, I must be in Christ because I feel so much love for him. Now, it would be a mistake to be dismissive toward emotions. We certainly don't want to make that error And I certainly don't want you to think I'm making that error. But it's an equally destructive mistake to mix up categories and put things in the wrong boxes. John does not say that by this we know that we know him, that we feel all the feels. Okay? This is not in here. In fact, he does not reference emotions at all. For John, when he puts the box on the shelf that's labeled evidences of salvation, it is quite clear without any argument that he simply puts in that box obedience. He says it like a thousand times in this one passage in a thousand different ways. We keep his commandments, right? Walk in the same way that he walked. Keep in his word. And he does this throughout the entire letter. Uh, Worship experience, quote-unquote, then, that does not leave its mark on the soul throughout the week is merely an experience. All that it is. You can tell if it's real or not by whether it changes your behavior. Those who truly know God keep his commandments And those who don't keep his commandments 
are what, according to John? Liars. On the other hand, according to verse 5, those who keep his commandments demonstrate their love for God. The, the, the phrase, the love of God, is most likely uh, referring to the believer's love for God. And so he's saying that those who keep his commandments demonstrate their love for God. Finally, he says in uh, this last section here, by this we know, second half of verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Again, same truth, expressed slightly differently. If we claim to be in Christ, then we will walk as he walked. Now, where do we go from here? I want to give some summary uh, thoughts here. Throughout the entire history of the church, two perennial temptations have continued to arise to the surface over and 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 over again. Temptation number one, put the cart before the horse. Temptation number two, get rid of the cart altogether. And we're falling on either side of the ditch here. Of course, to give you in plain terms the illustration here, faith is the horse and good works is the cart. And just like a cart or a horse, I'm putting a cart before the horse, just like the horse pulls the cart, faith pulls the good works along. If we make the first mistake, mistake number one, that is we put the cart before the horse, then we make it so that our salvation is dependent on our works. And religions that make that mistake are a dime a dozen. In fact, I would actually suggest that it's like every religion (laughs) except for Christianity. Here's what people say to themselves if they make this mistake. Uh, I'm unsure whether I'm a Christian or not. I don't have any assurance of my faith. Uh, What am I supposed to do? I'll begin to obey more and be a better Christian. That's getting the thing backwards in reverse. We don't ensure our salvation by striving harder. That's like trying to push water upstream. It's very important then, in fact, it's doubly important to make sure that you don't apply today's message by trying harder to be good in order to, don't apply today's message by being, trying harder to be good, in order to secure your salvation. You understand the in order to there? That is the error of getting the cart before the horse. I'm not sure if I'm saved, so I'll just work harder and obey more, and then God will be pleased with me. And this will be, by the way, our first point of application. We're going to say it this way. Um, Okay. I had to highlight and emphasize and underline the in order to, okay? Because if you... 
tamper with this statement at all, (laughs) we're into some heresy, okay? (laughs) So take the whole statement together. Don't cut part of it off. Don't modify, okay? Don't obey in order to secure your salvation. Okay, I didn't say don't obey. (laughs) I didn't say don't strive to walk as he walked. I didn't say that. I just don't obey in order to secure your salvation. And therefore, the second application will help to clarify the first. When you are applying application number one, it's important that you don't make mistake number two, which was what? What did we say mistake number two was? Getting rid of the card altogether. Okay? In this scenario, people will say this. Boy, I'm thankful for God's grace and that my salvation is not dependent on my works. Therefore, I can just take it easy. I'm not going to be all bunchy about this stuff. And we're just going to take... Application two then would be as follows. Obey God because... Or obey because you love God and were created for good works. Ephesians 2.10. And then finally, when you do sin, go to your advocate, Jesus Christ, who is a propitiation for your sin. See how John has just taken all of these puzzles and pieces, and he's collected them in one place, and he's just put it together just perfectly. I'm writing so that you don't sin. That's important. That's, you, don't, you should not sin. On the other hand, we know that you will sin. And hey, if you do sin, there's an advocate. And that advocate gives you free grace. He's a propitiation for your sins. And you're going to know that you are trusting in that advocate because your life is going to change. It's not going to be perfect, but you're going to be growing in Christ-likeness. You see how like just tampering with anything here just ever so slightly is going to put us down the wrong path. We are to care about being like Christ. And we are also very thankful for what Christ has done for us. You're going to put your head on your pillow tonight and you're probably going to have done something else. But you can sleep tonight because you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for your sins. You confess it, He forgives it, and like the father of the prodigal son, it's over. It's gone. He throws it in the deepest part of the ocean. And he doesn't say, you're on probation. He doesn't say purgatory for a few years to work it off. He simply opens his arms, and he hugs you, and he squeezes tight. I love you. Welcome home. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and for Christ. We thank you that Christ is our propitiation. We worship you for this reality, and we thank you that you have forgiven us. If there be any in here who's not in Christ, we pray that you would work in their hearts in such a way that they would repent and believe in the gospel, and that you would show that evidence to them. I pray that if there be anyone here today who is in Christ and is wrestling through the assurance of their faith, that you would just confirm and and, and help them to see their salvation, help them to to increase in their assurance of it.
I pray that you would help us all to honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.